You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. If you are able, please stand. And we're, today's passage is going to be in John chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. We're going to be reading in English first and then in Mandarin. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is the word of the Lord. So welcome to the second week of Advent. Um, as was discussed last week, Advent is this season of, of practicing in the church that's been practiced for a very long time. It's practiced all over the world, uh, even today, of four or maybe five weeks, depending on your tradition, where we slow down and we consider uh, what it was like to wait and anticipate the coming of the Messiah and his first coming. But then we also look, out, we look at ahead and we anticipate and expect the coming of Jesus in his return. And so last week, Pastor Christian opened our time in Advent looking at the long-expected arrival of the light, right? The light that would expel the darkness, the light that would come, and that light was and is Jesus. There, was, there is indeed this sense within the Bible as you read the scriptures of this expectation of the Messiah, right? It really starts in Genesis chapter 3. You see it there. You see it in the story of Abraham. You see it in the story in the Psalms of David. You see it in all of the writings of the prophets that God's people have been expecting the coming of the one who would make all things right, right? The one who would come and right all the wrongs of sin and restore God's creation. And in our Advent language of this year, the light that would come, that would shine against the darkness, and that would overcome the darkness, both in the world and in in us. But conversely to the expectation of the Advent season is also this sense of the unexpected, right? There's so much about this story. There's so much about the scriptures that help us expect the coming of the Messiah, but there's also a lot about his coming that was very unexpected to many in his time. There's so much actually even within our modern narratives around the Christmas season that are rife with the unexpected coming true. Let me give you a few examples, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? The social outcast, right? He wasn't even allowed to play the reindeer games, Uh, But by the end of the story, he's leading the A-team of the sled and saving the day, right? Very unexpected. Or you have the Grinch, right? The societal psychopath who who goes around the whole story trying to ruin everyone's Christmas. But at the end of the story, he's welcomed to the table as a part of the family, where we have George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, right? The community savior character. Every time something goes wrong, everyone looks to George. But by the end of the story, he's getting ready to commit suicide only to be saved by an angel. I think most poignantly for me is the story and the character 
of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Scrooge is this character who is so unexpected that anything would happen in his life that would be redemptive, right? Dickens describes Scrooge in this way at the beginning of A Christmas Carol. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand to the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no seal had ever struck out generous fire, a secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, made his eyes uh, red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. This is the description of Scrooge. This description is only actually a portion of the description that, that Dickens gives of him. It actually goes on for another page to describe how terrible the nature of Ebenezer Scrooge was. And the point is this, that no one ever expected anything kind or redemptive to ever occur in relation to Scrooge, not to him, not from him, not for him. And as we all know, the story becomes one of the most unexpected stories of redemption ever written, as through supernatural means, Scrooge is transformed from what we just read to this at the end of the novel. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. I think what Advent and the Christmas seasons are trying to tell us is that if we're like Scrooge, if we feel like we're, there's nothing good that could come into our lives, that everyone looks at us and says nothing good is ever going to come out of their lives, we're not too far gone. There's so much hope for me, and there's so much hope for you in the story of Advent and the story of Christmas. And so I encourage you this morning, you're here, right? Whether you came here willingly or whether you came here unwillingly, whether you're a member here or whether you're just visiting, that you're here, right? And we're practicing Advent together. So I encourage you to press into this season this morning, even if it in this just brief time, as we hear from the word, as we sing songs, as we fellowship afterward, and find what the season and what Jesus has for you. And I would encourage you to then practice this season ongoing for the next several weeks because no matter who you are, there's no one who is too far gone and there's no one that has gone far enough to not receive something in this season. So it is in this seasonal pattern of unexpectedness that we're gonna go through our passage this morning. So we have a five, uh, five points this morning. This is our pattern for this morning. The unexpected time, the unexpected messenger, the unexpected mission, the unexpected light, and the unexpected way. So that will be our pattern this morning. So first, the unexpected time. The end of the Old Testament finds the people of God returning to Israel from exile. Right? They had been carried away into exile, into Babylon for their idolatry and for their wickedness. And when we leave Israel at the end of the Old Testament, they are attempting to reconstitute their nation, right? They're trying to reconstitute their nation physically as they rebuild the temple, as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and their towns and their livelihoods. We see those stories in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but they're also trying to reconstitute themselves spiritually. 
And we see them really kind of failing to do so in the final book of the Bible chronologically, which is Malachi, which is really just a series of disputes between God and the people, right? God's saying, this is what you guys are doing, you should stop. And the people saying, well, I'm not so sure that that's how we interpret our situation. Then from the perspective of the scriptures, there is about 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testaments, between Malachi and the events of the Gospels where we find ourselves this morning. And during this time, Israel is conquered by the Greeks, and then they sort of rise up uh, and, and fight back to find some relief, but then they become subject to Rome and the empire of Caesar. And this period is known as the intertestamental period and is one of where Israel faces some extreme challenges, challenges against their sovereignty, right, as they continually are being conquered and subjected, challenges against its religion, right, as these peoples that are conquering them have their own idea of divinity and the meaning of life, and challenges against its uniqueness among the nations, right? This was the idea of Israel is that they were different. They were set apart. They were holy. But it's certainly as the Greeks came in and sort of mandated that everyone learn Greek and speak Greek, there, some of their uniqueness began to melt away. But overall, this 400-year period is kind of a dark time in the history of the people of Israel. And it's interesting to know that Israel experienced another, right, 400-year period of difficulty in its history. It so happens that Israel was in Egypt for 400 years, following its move there during the time of Jacob and Joseph. And that period devolved from a period of relative safety and security in Egypt to one that found Israel at the end of their rope in slavery in Egypt. And this was a dark time for the people of God. And it's described in Exodus chapter 2 in this way. During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And the story of Exodus then continues, right, as Moses delivers God's people out of this very unexpectedly difficult and hard time and leads them out to the wilderness to be with God and eventually into the promised land. And at the end of the 400 years after Malachi, the second 400 years, Israel is in bondage to Rome, in danger of losing its identity, in danger of losing its religion, in danger of crumbling under the weight of it all. They're really in the valley of the shadow of death. They've waited all throughout their history for the Messiah to come, the one who would right all the wrongs and alleviate their pain, but he hasn't shown up. And they're dying in darkness. And perhaps for many in that time, hope seemed lost. But God is preparing to open up the storehouses of heaven. God is preparing to bring a light that would outshine Abraham, that would outshine Moses, that would outshine David. God has set the table for the eternal light to come. And we heard last week about that light described in the previous verses as the word. And we saw how the word was Jesus Christ himself. So it is in this unexpected time of difficulty and darkness that God is preparing something wonderful. That though it may seem unexpected to us, though it may have felt very unexpected to those living in Jesus's time, it was very much expected by God. We're actually told in Galatians chapter four 
this, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So certainly from God's perspective, the fullness of time for him had come. This is fully expected from God's vantage point, but maybe unexpected from ours. And maybe this is where you are at this morning. Maybe you feel like this is the worst time of year, or this is the worst time of your decade, or maybe sadly, this is the worst time of your life. You've lost that expected hope of the future, and you're just barely hanging on. Well, the Advent story brings hope for you that in this dark time, God is making a way where there seems to be no way for people who have lost their way. This is what our God does. When things are dark, when things are grim, he's there alongside us, leading us to his, his light. So it's in this unexpected time that an unexpected messenger shows up. So out of this unexpected time, comes the, t- the first character of this time in this unfolding story. John's prologue continues this way in verse six. Notice, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John, the writer, is referring to the biblical and historical figure of John the baptizer. Right? In many ways, John the baptizer carries forward this idea of the unexpected, His character in this story of God's redemption was foretold by a couple of prophets in Isaiah chapter 40 and also in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. Those are the the references for you. And this is what it says in Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that first few phrases of this passage, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, is really the, pro- the prophecy of John the Baptist coming before Jesus. So in some sense, he is an expected character to come on the scene, right? This role has been cast in the prophets. He's here, right? And this role is this, right? This light that is coming into the darkness is also a king, right? King Jesus is what we call him sometimes, right? And this character that John embodies is like a kingly herald, like one that would go before the king and say, like, hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming, right? That's his role to play. And yet, as we read his story, as we read John the baptizer's story, John's casting in this role as forerunner, as herald, as witness to the light in our passage is really unexpected. And it's unexpected for a couple of reasons, at least. First, we're told in the Gospel of Luke that John's parents were old and that his mother Elizabeth was barren. And yet this is who God chooses to birth this foretold character in the story of his coming Messiah. By all rights and human wisdom, John shouldn't exist. His parents were old. His mom had been unable to have children. The situation was quite bleak. But God breaks through to make what would seem to many of us impossible, possible. So John's very existence as a living, breathing human is unexpected without something from God happening. Secondly, as John grows up, his whole persona becomes quite 
odd. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that John wore clothes made from camel hair, secured around his waist with a leather belt, that he lived in the wilderness, and that he ate locusts with honey, right? And that's not like a special like Hebrew word for something. That's locusts, like the bug, right? So as you heard last week, right, the, the arrival of this light from God is coming. And it's coming in the person of Jesus. And God sends his representative, right, his royal herald to say that he is coming. And it's a dude who wears scratchy, like unkempt clothes, who lives in the wilderness and who eats bugs, Certainly, this is an unexpected messenger. And I think this speaks to something that the story of Jesus is very sensitive to portray, and that that, this is that Jesus is not an elitist savior. He's not a reserved savior. He's not a savior who only hangs out with the cool kids. And maybe for some of us here this morning, that's been our barrier to coming to faith. Or maybe for some of us this morning, that's been our barrier from growing in relationship with Jesus. Perhaps the church has made you feel like you don't belong. Or perhaps the Bible has felt like it's only reserved for like a few smart people. I think part of the message this morning is that God sent a man who shouldn't exist, who shouldn't have been born, and was pretty scraggly to have one of the most important jobs in his kingdom being his herald and his witness. King Jesus does not refuse you based on some human category. King Jesus is not elitist. King Jesus is not reserved. King Jesus is not just for the cool kids. In fact, he is more often betrayed in the scriptures with the exact opposite of those categories. So I think the message this morning is that if you have already written yourself off this morning, or if you feel written off this morning, The message that John brings, the message of this character who seems so unexpected to those around him is come, come. Jesus wants you to come and to join him and to be with him and to be with his church. So first, we have this unexpected time. Second, this unexpected messenger. And third, this unexpected mission. So our passage continues with this statement about what John is supposed to be doing, right? In verse seven, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through, excuse me, through him. Okay, so when I read verse seven, what it sounds like to me is this is John's mission statement from God, right? If I am putting together a mission statement, it has two important components, it has a goal, and it has a method, right? So the goal is that all might believe, right? That is John's goal, that all might believe in Jesus, and his method is to bear witness, right? So this is John's mission. It seems like a pretty straightforward mission, but it is his approach to this mission that is quite unexpected or would have been quite unexpected for those that would have met him, that would have been impacted by his ministry, the first thing that John does to meet this goal is he, is he baptizes people, right? That's why we call him John the Baptist or the baptizer. And we're told in Luke chapter three, verse three, and he, speaking of John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness 
of sins. Now, baptism or washing with water or sprinkling with water can be seen really in the Old Testament as these ritual practices in a couple of different ways and also in this time in a couple of different ways. One is when you were found ceremonially unclean, like something out of the ordinary happened where you could not just go get washed at the temple, but you had to go do something sort of extraordinary to prove that you were clean by being washed with water. Or secondly, it was for those outside the, co- the company of Israel who wanted to come and be a part of the nation of Israel. They would go through the process with the rabbi of learning from him, and then at some point, they would be baptized into the community. But John is coming around, and he's saying, you need to recognize your sin, and you need a rewashing. You need a rewashing. So John is saying to the people, basically, you're unclean, which would have been scandalous like to many Jews who consider themselves pious, who consider themselves holy, who consider themselves the people of God, especially as it pertained to their Roman occupiers, right? There's a stark contrast during this time, right? There's the holy people of Israel, and then there's the Roman occupiers who are not holy, But it's also this second thing that John goes around doing quite a bit that we see him doing in the Gospels. And it goes on in Luke in verses 7 to to 9 to say this. So John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the second sort of methodology that that John sort of employs is, is 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 the method of rebuke. He's rebuking the people for living outside of their call of repentance by relying too heavily on their lineage in Abraham. Where he's telling the crowds, don't rely on who your family is. Like, that doesn't matter. God could call these rocks to rise up to be Abraham's children. You need something real. And certainly from a first century Jewish perspective, that would have been an unexpected mission, certainly unexpected uh, methods. Right, because they were the ones that were waiting for the Messiah. Right? They were the ones that were searching for the Messiah. They were the ones who were groaning like ancient Israel in Egypt for help from God. And here's this guy who comes out of the wilderness calling us out as if we need to repent. Why doesn't he call the Romans to repent? Who is this? And Matthew Henry, uh, a theologian, describes John's mission in this way, and I think it's helpful. He says, John was like the night watchman that goes around the town proclaiming the approach of the morning light to those who have closed their eyes and are not willing themselves to observe it. So this was John's mission. I think some of his tactics really are the tactics employed by someone who's really trying to convince people of something that they don't want to be convinced of. There's a little bit of shock in there, because he's trying to shock their system into realizing that they have a very real problem. It's like they've shut their eyes to the light, and you're trying to convince someone to open their, their eyes. That's very difficult. 
For some of us this morning, I think especially for those of us who are familiar within the church, I think this is where Advent rubs us wrong. I think for me, this might be where Advent rubs me the most wrong. Because I think some of us, we we may not verbalize, but we may say it inside of our hearts. If we say, well, don't call me out. Right, like I'm on the inside, right? Like don't call me out. Like I've made more like popsicle stick nativities than anyone else. Right, don't call me to look into the manger in, in awe. Don't call me to consider my devotion. I'm the most devoted of anyone in this room. And that sometimes is my tendency, and that may be yours as well. But I think the call of Advent includes this unexpected missional call of John to repent, to remember why we needed Jesus to come. We didn't need Jesus to come because we're good people and we need to be like a little bit better. But we needed Jesus to come because we were hopeless in darkness and we needed salvation. So I think that we need to hear this missional call of John to repent and to be prepared for the one who deserves our every breath, Jesus Christ. So the unexpected time, this unexpected messenger and this unexpected mission then leads us to the unexpected light. Continuing in our passage, John the writer is keen to provide us with a clarification about John the baptizer in verse eight. That's what he says. He, speaking of John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John the writer wants us to be clear that John the baptizer is not the light. He's not the one that you have been waiting for. I think it's important to know that John the baptizer is quite clear in this regard when he says in the gospel uh, to his own disciples in Mark 1, verses 7 to 8, and he he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So certainly John understood his role, right? That he wasn't the Messiah, that he wasn't the one that Israel had been waiting for, but that there was someone to come after him who would be that person, and that person was Jesus. And the first century church was admonished similarly by Paul in Acts 19, where Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus, right? It's very clear, right? John the Baptist was not the Messiah. Jesus is. So why this necessary clarification? Well, I think in part, right, it's due to John's disciples and those who were impacted by John's message to realize that John was not the one that they were waiting for, but that that his job was to point to someone greater than himself and that was Jesus. It was to provide an important context for those that had missed Jesus, but had heard John, that John was not him and should not be mistaken as him, uh, but are called to the true light, right? Hey, listen, like, if, you, if you missed Jesus for whatever reason, like, and you, but you heard John, John was pointing to someone greater. But I think in another sense, John, though he is kind of odd and unexpected, is safer than even Jesus. John can be killed, right? And we see Herod doing so. But Jesus is much more dangerous. Maybe for some in the first century, they could live with John, but they couldn't make the leap 
to Jesus. The Messiah is described in Isaiah in this way. So think about this character, right, the Messiah, this king who's supposed to come and right all the wrongs. This is a lofty position. And this is how he's described in Isaiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's Jesus. Jesus comes as the light. He comes as the king, the redeeming king. But even more than John, he is unexpected. He is the unexpected light. He is so unexpected that as a king, he has no majesty, no beauty. He was despised. Actually, he says that twice in the passage. I don't know if you caught that. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and grief with no esteem. John wasn't the light, and he was a hard pill for many to swallow. Jesus is the light, but he's not like some cute golden retriever with a bow underneath your Christmas tree. Jesus is a poor, humble tradesman born to a scandalized woman from a nowhere town who lived most of his life in obscurity before gaining fame for teaching, healing, leading a backwards community, only to be turned on by that community and delivered over to be killed. But his followers don't believe that he's dead, that he rose again, and that his resurrection has purchased for them not freedom from Rome, but freedom from Satan's sin and even death. That is the story of Jesus. That is the gospel. John wasn't the light, and he was a hard pill for many to swallow. But Jesus is the light, and John points to him for both those in his time and those in our time. And maybe your barrier to Jesus has been this very thing. He's like a little bit too much. Jesus isn't your homeboy, right? No matter what Hot Topic is trying to tell you. Jesus is God in human form, come to rescue the world out of darkness by his marvelous light. So he is too much. He is more glorious than you can imagine. He is hard to catch. He's hard to swallow. But he is the light that we are waiting for. He is the light that will shine in your darkness. And for others, maybe this is a time to reassess your own calling. For some, what you may need to hear this morning is that you're not the light. And you need to stop trying to be someone's savior in your life. For others, this may be the time to stop relying on someone in your life other than Jesus to save you and sustain you. The call this morning is to move beyond the witness to the substance to Jesus. I think for those of us in unexpected times, for those of us that find themselves feeling very unexpected or not included, Jesus invites us this morning again into his unexpected way. So finally, the unexpected way. Jesus' way is not 
reserved for people with everything together. Amen. But people who recognize that they need him. For those that recognize that they need Jesus, he he invited you, he invites you, he continually invites you on his way where he is going. So where does this leave us who believe? I think we need to recognize is that, what we need to recognize is that John, like John, we are too are witnesses to the light. We aren't the light, but it is our joy to bear witness to it, or it should be. We aren't people's saviors, but it's our joy to point people to Jesus. That's our job, that's our mission with our lives. Matthew Henry describes our way in this way. Light is a thing which witnesses to itself and carries its own evidence along with it. But to those who shut their eyes against the light, it is necessary there should be those that bear witness to it. Christ's light needs not man's testimony, but the world's darkness does. And why is that true? Why is it true that Christ's light needs not man's testimony, but the world's darkness does? Well, it's true because God made it that way. That in his infinite wisdom, God chose to mete out his plan in this time through us. Through us being witnesses and bearers of his light. It's a pretty awesome calling. And this calling to be bearers and witnesses of light like John is not optional, but our joy and our calling as followers of Jesus. And to encourage us in this, to encourage us in our call as bearers and witnesses to the light, I would like to close our time by reading a portion of Isaiah 60. So if the worship team would come forward, I'm gonna read this over you. So if you would bow your heads, close your eyes, and listen to the scriptures. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nation shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Father,